Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Jewanced. We're two Jewish guys. We grew up in America, we live in Israel, and we're looking to challenge popular conceptions, think critically, examine independently, and most of all, seek nuance. Each episode will host a different guest. Together, we'll take a deep dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, technology, food, the arts, business, you name it. A lot of it will deal with the Jewish world in Israel, but not all. Our goal? To create a platform where people share their stories, insights, and visions. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, debate, and discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. All right, everybody, uh, let's just do a quick mic check here. Test, 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 one, two, three, one, two, three, testing, testing. Test, one, two, one, two, testing, testing. La, 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 testing, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Fantastic. <laughs> awesome. Hey, everybody, welcome to Juance. This is uh, Benny Shoulder, uh, Dan Pfefferman's on my left, and... Uh, Daniel Schwartz is in front of me. How's everybody doing? It was a great week. Are you having a good week, Dan? This has been a huge week. How about you, Daniel? Um, hasn't been a huge week, but it's been a good month. So, so what's, <laughs> uh, how's it been a good month for you? Um, well, we reached a certain milestone um, in terms of our um, settlement into Israel. We made Aliyah four years ago. And a month ago, our oldest son drafted into the Israeli Defense Forces, into the Nachal Brigade. So that was kind of a big deal for us. Fantastic. Mazel tov. May he have uh, much health and uh, be safe and keep us all safe. Yes, we're hoping the entire thing will be theoretical. So uh, where's, he, uh, where's he at right now? In Tel Arad. Nachal. Nachal. And for those that, that aren't aware, Nachal is one of the four infantry brigades of, uh, of the IDF. So uh, so your son is a combat soldier. He's a grunt. He's a combat soldier. Right now, the combat soldier probably is several hours into, I don't know the English word for gibush, where he's trying to become a commando or some sort of a specialized um, something or another. Um, and he'll be doing that through Thursday, and then hopefully he'll be able to drag himself home um, in one piece uh, for Shabbat. We haven't seen him in three weeks. So, wow. so he will come back uh, very smelly and tired. He's going to eat a big meal and sleep the entire weekend. He's already told us to make sure that the air conditioning in his room is on, <laughs> is on, is on at 18 degrees uh, starting on Thursday morning. Yes. Yes. We, we were having a heat wave uh, for those of you outside of Israel. So it's, it's, it has started and we're going to have a heat wave all week here. And he, especially since he's in the desert, it's... Uh, even hotter. And he had a power outage this past Saturday because everybody had their air conditioning gone full blast. Right, so right. there was a complete power outage on the base for several hours. It was Boy. a lot of fun. No, it's it's like hotter than Hades around here. I can tell you. Uh, hotter than Hades? Hotter than Hades. It's it's just wow. one of those things where, I, you know, I, I, uh, I'll have to say, I'm going to take Dan's... Uh, Dan's glory at the moment. I uh, this week started uh, a new hobby, uh, which will be it's not a hobby. It's a, a lifestyle, lifestyle change. Lifestyle change, and uh, joined up uh, CrossFit uh, at Rose Valley CrossFit. Shout out to Rose Valley. Um, after a successful uh, lobbying campaign waged by Dan over the past years, years, years in the process. So uh, he wears you down, and then in the end, you you, you kind of just have no choice. You just gotta come try it. 
but it was hot. It was it's really, hot. really hot. You're in this, uh, you're in this, you know, it's not an enclosed space, but they have no AC and you're working out and I've never sweat more ever. Like I'm, ta- I'm including yeah. sauna and steam room experience. It's a sauna. I look, it's, it's working out in a sauna. I look forward to being the last remaining dad bod among all of Dan's friends. <laughs> you just might be. Uh, yep. So this has been a we'll super exciting. We'll, we'll get you too. Uh, this has been a super exciting week for me as well. Uh, and this is something that hopefully will play into a couple of podcast episodes in the near future. Um, had the honor and, and maybe the dumb luck to uh, become one of the founding members of the UAE Israel Business Council. So this is a council started by a uh, prominent uh, Israeli uh, American Israeli businessman who's been doing business there in the Gulf. And uh, we've got some people here in Israel and some people in the UAE and uh, got in uh, and we are moving really fast press conferences and, and trying to get cooperation on the ground, uh, might find myself in the UAE, hopefully. And uh, we're looking already to do a couple of uh, juanced episodes with uh, people from the UAE who I'm already talking to. So this has been a whirlwind of a week, and it's been super exciting. Uh, and I'm really excited to see where this goes. We're all really excited to see where this goes. And I was, I was kind of reflecting on this earlier today when I heard about the press conference that you were doing, which is, you know, it seems like this is going to be a, a, a real peace, a warm peace, and not and not just the cold, you know, lack of hostilities peace that we get from our neighbors in Jordan and Egypt. So that's that's a real change for Israel when we're talking about a peace or a normalization accord with a with an Arab state. And I think it's very new for anybody here to have that. And I think it's going to uh, change a lot of perceptions that many people here have about Arabs, and hopefully change a lot of perceptions that Arabs have about us Jews. And and I hope that we continue to, to, to work on that well and that we merit lots and lots of success with that relationship. I, I hope so. I hope so. God willing. And I'm already in these um, kind of WhatsApp chats and uh, Twitter chats with, uh, albeit, uh, you know, like-minded Israelis and Emiratis and, and other Arabs who are not just Emiratis who are looking to uh, to genuinely improve the relations between Israel and, and the Gulf. Um, but you see a lot of excitement. You see a lot of hope. You see a ton of curiosity, mutual curiosity between both countries. So uh, who knows? Let's see where this goes. But I think uh, we should get to uh, so our guest. Yeah, of this guy's sitting here in front of us like we're talking about the Emirates. What, we're, what? we're drinking coffee. He's watching us talk. He's so, not even smiling. I don't smile. He doesn't smile. <laughs> I, can, I can attest to that. He has not smiled once. It's kind of it's a little intimidating. I smirk amusedly, but I don't smile. Smirk? It was a grimace. <laughs> no, that's a smile. <laughs> so, right, so, yeah, so... Being the giant nerd I am, this is an episode I've actually wanted to do. It's actually a part of two episodes I've wanted to do since the beginning. And with Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, and the high holidays coming up in just a couple of weeks here, um, we uh, are very fortunate to personally know a terrific and wonderful and knowledgeable chazan, or a cantor, a professional cantorial soloist. Uh, And this is Daniel Schwartz. So Daniel, hi once again. Hello. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. And uh, we were we're, we're going to take our audience here a little bit into the sausage making of the podcast world. But uh, we were talking with Daniel not long ago, and it came up that we could do a wonderful episode um, into this nerdy passion of mine, on which Daniel is is really uh, an expert and a practitioner both at the same time on the world of chazanut, on the world of the cantorial arts, if you if you will. Benny, how familiar are, are you with the world of the cantor and the cantorial arts? I'm familiar with the world of the custodial arts. Mm. Am I even using that right, Daniel? C- cantorial arts? 
Yeah, you can say it that way. Well, how would you say it? In, his, in Hebrew, you would just say chazanut. You know what? Chazanut um, is a good term, although I prefer its European or Ashkenazic pronunciation, chazonus. It has a certain connotation, um, especially since the area of cantorial music that I uh, that I know best is the Central and Eastern European uh, cantorial tradition. So, chazonus. So how does uh, one in the 20, are we in the 21st century? I always get confused. 20, 21st. 21st. Because, you know, you're like, you're still in the year 2020, but you say 21st century. So anyway, uh, how does one in the 21st century uh, get to become a professional chazan, a professional cantor? Okay. So first of all, I just want to point out one thing. Um, if you're going to define a professional chazan or cantor as somebody who um, earns his livelihood by it, I'm not a professional. Yeah. Um, in my professional life, uh, I'm an attorney. Close I'm an attorney, but my and he's, a, and he's a damn good attorney. If anybody needs, uh, well, thank help you in that regard. Thank you. Um, but um, my real love, you know, in terms of what what is my where does my mind take me when I have nothing else uh, to to consider? It always takes me back um, to cantorial music and to. Um, what's called Nusach HaTfilah, which is a term you're going to hear an awful lot uh, during the course of our time together today. So explain that. Explain to our listeners uh, what that means. Okay, I was going to get into it. Nusach, nusach HaTfilah refers to the either a certain number of set um, melodies which are attached to specific texts of the Jewish liturgy. So, so in this, sorry to, to cut in here. So in this, in this case, Nusach, the word for those uninitiated into Hebrew means... Uh, I think it would be liturgy. It is, it is liturgy, but liturgy. but but it means but the word nusach is used in two different ways. Number one, in terms of the text of the of the of the liturgy, the text of the prayers, but also in the Ashkenazic sense, the music of the intonation of the prayers, and that nusach gets broken down into two different areas. Number one, there are what are called the misinai melodies. Um, which are melodies which are so hoary with age, it's as if they came down from Mount Sinai with Moses and the two tablets. And those are set melodies which no cantor is allowed to depart from. When you reach a particular section of the liturgy, you must use that melody. Primarily those are in the high holidays, and we're going to get to them in a minute. But the other aspect... So it's like, thou shalt not freestyle. <laughs> at that, at those points, thou absolutely shalt not freestyle. Okay. Although I'll tell you later on, you'll see there is a certain amount of freestyling even within those as well. But we'll we'll, we'll get into that. No improv on. Uh, so, right. so so this, this is section, classical music and not jazz. Sometimes no, I'm about to get to the jazz as well because the second part the second part of Nusach has to do with um, musical <laughs> motives and set scales in which one chants the prayers. However, within those scales, you have all kinds of motives and submotives, and there you're free uh, to pick and choose and to operate and even to move between scalar patterns and, and so forth. But we'll, we'll, get, and we'll get into that as well. So, so uh, when, I, when I said uh, professional, of course, I, I know that, that you are a lawyer for a living, but you do, uh, you do go abroad, at least during non-corona times uh, every year, and you are a featured uh, cantorial soloist at a synagogue abroad. Yeah. Uh, but you're classically trained. Yes. Yes, I am so, classically trained. So, my, so how does one become classically trained? So, how do, so the real old-fashioned way, which is probably the best way to do it, um, is no longer really in practice, which was a young boy apprenticed himself to a cantor in his choir 
and literally learned this material by osmosis, by listening and listening. And then after a couple of years of standing there and listening, you were allowed to open up your mouth. And if you had a particularly pleasant voice and the cantor liked you, you weren't a discipline problem and and things like that, um, then eventually you became a soloist. And if you displayed real aptitude for it, um, you eventually graduated into becoming a cantor. You became of adult age, and you began to make your career um, as a cantor. Is, is there a certification? Like we, we talk about rabbis, and there's smicha, there's uh, ordination. Is there some kind of a similar uh, term or process or or level of, of uh, qualification for cantors? Classically, no. Contemporarily, yes. Um, in the Orthodox world, um, there are a number of cantorial um, institutes. I studied um, in the cantorial uh, school at Yeshiva University. Um, they give out a diploma. Uh, the Ju- and in Israel, there are two main ones. There is a Tel Aviv Academy of Ca- the Tel Aviv Academy of Cantorial Music. It's TAC, I don't remember. Tel Aviv Cantorial Institute, I'm sorry. Um, they give out a diploma, and then there's also a school of cantorial music in Petah Tikva. But I just want to point out, as opposed to rabbinic ordination, rabbinic ordination harkens back thousands of years, and it is a, um, it's a solemn um, type of ordination in that one is authorized to decide questions of Jewish law. Um, ordained cantors or certified cantors or diplomat cantors, we're not we're not certified to decide questions of cantorial law. It's just simply we have learned a corpus of material and we've developed a certain aptitude or expertise within it. You don't need um, a diploma uh, to be a cantor. What you need is knowledge. Um, and a good voice. Um, yes, a voice helps, although I'm among the minority of cantors. I think the voice is maybe the third or fourth um, consideration when I um, evaluate um, a cancer. Most people, for most people, it's the most important aspect. For me, it's the third or fourth most important one. The more important ones, to my mind, are does the person have an understanding of the text of the prayer? Does he have a very solid, strong grounding in Nusach? Number three, does he have a good grounding generally in music and therefore is able to work creatively, musically, within the Nusach to create an exposition um, and, a, and, a good, and an interesting presentation of the prayers. And the voice is a tool that you need in order to be able to effectively do that. But if all you are is a voice without the other three, you're not going to be a chazan under any, under any definition. If you have the three and your voice isn't necessarily so ay-ay-ay, as we say in the trade, um, that's okay. So if like, you have number four only, you should, you should like, you know, pursue a course of becoming a wedding singer. No, basically, like no, you're not, not going to be or go or go to school and start to learn. So if I, if I go back in time now, you're 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 a young man studying at Yeshiva University. Mm-hmm. You grew up. You grew up where? I grew up in Southfield, Michigan. Okay, so you you knew. I want to just try to understand the timeline. You went to Yeshiva University for the for the purpose of becoming a a cantor. No, I went to Yeshiva University for the purpose of becoming a lawyer. Right. <laughs> so it was like an extracurricular thing that you discovered at, okay. at YU, or before no. YU, were you classically trained like in the style of which you just okay. went into so, uh, when okay. you were apprenticed for somebody? Or? All right. So in my personal life, uh, there were two things. Number one, I came not from a family of musicians, but certainly from a family where music was greatly, greatly appreciated. Um, my mo- Both of my parents... 
introduced my sister and I to um, my sister and me to um, to classical music at very early ages. Um, both my sister and myself, we began playing the piano, classical piano, when we were four or five years old. Um, my as father, as one does, as one does. Well, when one has you know Eastern European immigrant parents, one certainly does. Um, my father uh, played the violin. Um, Where did your parents come from? My father was Hungarian. My mother is from Transylvania. Um, <clears throat> my father began playing the violin when he was about 42, 43 years old because it was just a challenge that he wanted to do. Uh, but he had some aptitude for it. In terms of cantorial music, there are two things in my personality um, which sort of melded. First of all, from a very, very early age, I was that kid that always liked to go to synagogue. Um, in most households, the father is terrorizing his son to wake up and get to shul on time on Shabbat morning. In our house, it was the opposite. I was the one who was up at 7 o'clock and started schlepping my father out of bed to make sure that we got there on time. And he was always, good God, just leave me alone. I mean, he sent me to do, make me a cup of coffee, make me something for breakfast. I mean, anything he could do to get another, an extra 10 minutes in bed. <laughs> <laughs> but I just terrorized him week after week after week until finally when I was about 9 or 10 years old, my father looked at my mother and said, he's old enough to go by himself. <laughs> <laughs> So not me. That's not me. That's I, I was always. I, I don't know why. And up up until this day, if I'm not among the first ten people to make the minion, um, it's shul on any given morning. Then I don't bother to go. I, I'm I'm either there before it starts, or, or I don't go. It's just, I've always been that way. I remember also when I was about maybe six, seven, eight years old, um, we were invited to a bar mitzvah on a Shavuot morning, the holiday of Shavuot, at a local, uh, the local conservative uh, synagogue. So I have to point out, Orthodox synagogues in the United States and post-World War II United States generally do not employ professional cantors for a lot of reasons. Conservative synagogues do, and back in those days, you know, 40-some-odd years ago, m most of the cantors in the conservative world were experts. They were just amazing, amazing cantors. This particular synagogue, Sharet Tzedek, in Southfield, Michigan, at the time had a cantor, his name was Jacob Barkin, who was one of the greats um, of, the, uh, of the 20th century. The man had a voice like, a, like, like, like the Liberty Bell. I mean, it just rang out. And I remember we went to this bar mitzvah, and the chazan was at the bima, um, in the full cantorial regalia, the black robe and the, and the high hat, and there was a choir um, there as well. And I didn't know anything about cantorial music. I didn't know anything about how davening, how prayer is supposed to sound. But I just sat there in that synagogue with my mouth hanging open, and I didn't want it to be over. I just didn't want it to end. It was just the most. It was the most splendiferous thing that I that I had experienced religiously, um, and it was over. I cried. I was like, "Why is this over? It has to. It has to keep on going." Mm -hmm. And after that, I began to pay attention to how davening sounds. Um, davening for for some of our listeners is is filah uh, prayer. Is prayer. It's just the the Yiddish word for, it, right, for Yiddish, prayer. Right. Um, and I began paying attention in our particular in our synagogue, the ortho, the smaller Orthodox synagogue um, where we belonged. We had a cantor for the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. Um, he was actually an accountant, 
um, by trade, a member of the synagogue, but he had studied uh, Chazanut, Chazonas. Um, he was quite good. He was uh, he, he was quite good, and uh, as a matter of fact, some of his repertoire I've still incorporated into uh, into mine melodies from uh, when I was a childhood, from my childhood. Um, I always looked forward uh, to the high holidays for two reasons. Number one, because Dave Greenbaum, who was the cantor um, in my shul, he would get up to daven. Um, and it sounded really very, very nicely. But also on Yom Kippur afternoon during the break, after Musaf, after the second service of the morning ends, there's usually a break of about an hour, an hour and a half before the afternoon service. My father and a bunch of his friends would walk over to that Sharet Tzedek. Um, to listen to the to listen, listen to the conservative cantor, wow. who was Jacob Barkin. After him, it was another chazan named Chaim Naiman, also a wonderful chazan. And I used to tag along, and you had the classic old joke of somebody tries to get into temple on Yom Kippur without a ticket, mm-hmm. and the <laughs> usher, and just try just try to picture this, you know, four fifty something year old Hungarian Jews walking into a conservative temple on Yom Kippur. We wear white shrouds, a kittel. So you have these four men in their white kittel with their big talitot, the big prayer shawl that the Orthodox Jews wear you know, dragging behind them and with heavily, heavily accented um, English saying, we are here only for a few minutes to hear the cantor. <laughs> and and of course you have the usher then say, well, don't let me catch you praying. <laughs> <laughs> Is this in the 60s? 70s. 70s, 70s and into the 80s. Um, I'm not that old. Um, so, yeah. but again, and you know, it was about a half an hour walk to this synagogue and they did it just to get 15 or 20 minutes of that sound Fantastic. before they went back, you know, for, for the services. And my father always said go on the way back, this is how it sounded at home. That was when he mm. was a child in Hungary, because in Europe, every, every, every community had a chazan um, or any, you know, any sizable community. Um, and for simply for those 15 or 20 minutes for him to be able to get a sound and hearken back a little bit, although as I went on to study more and more cantorial music, what took place in Shari Tzedek sounded nothing. <laughs> like, like what things must have sounded like in my father's uh, town in Hungary. However, in his mind, the idea of hearing a professional high-grade um, chazan, even if just for a few minutes um, on a Yom Kippur afternoon, it was worth walking an hour while fasting, while well into a 26-hour fast, um, it was just something that he that he wanted. It's, it's uh, so amazing fantastic. what we will do just to, to kind of just to touch, get a taste of that memory of of something that yeah. makes us nostalgic for our childhood right. or for or for something in a different place and in a different time. And and that's so that's so true. I mean, like that's why your dad was doing it. He was yes. It reminded him of not just of a place, but it reminded him of of a moment in his life when perhaps things were. We're, we're simple. Um, when, well, well, when things were, were better, or yeah. in his mind at least, when things were better. Yeah. Anyway, that's, um, I grew up uh, in a reform uh, temple, and um, I, I also used to very much enjoy going uh, as a child. We'd go almost every Shabbat, which is unusual for a reform family. Um, and sometimes Your mom's the rabbi. She was not the rabbi at the time. Um, we were just active members. But uh, sometimes there would be a professional... Uh, Cantor sometimes, uh, uh, and I remember uh, I laugh in retrospect because this this would be unthinkable today. You know, now I go to an Orthodox shul, I, I don't even think I can imagine a Reform temple doing this today. But at, at one point, they used to hire um, a gentleman from the community 
who was not Jewish, but he was a classically trained singer who could read music. So they gave him the music. That's number four sheets. in your scale. Just a guy that sings. <laughs> Just well, a guy that sings. They gave him the musical well, he sheets. he knows music. He knew, he knew music. Right. And he had a very nice uh, uh, classically trained voice. And he, they transliterated you know, the Hebrew. And um, But I used to enjoy listening to whenever it was a professional, what I thought was a professional chazan at the time, or whenever there was the choir um, or kind of the more traditional melodies, I just used to love it. I used to love uh, uh, hearing that. And ever since, um, whether Ashkenazi, and then when I was introduced to Sephardic chazanut uh, and paitanut, which which I really hope we have an episode on uh, in the coming weeks, uh, or maybe um, possibly between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, um, it's just, it, it speaks to my soul. I, I don't know how to say it in any other way, and it might sound horribly cheesy, but it really does. And it's who uh, you are, man. You just gotta it, it's yourself. who I am, and uh, I wish, I wish to God, I had the musical talent, um, but I don't. I don't have a great voice, but I, but I certainly uh, appreciate it. You don't need a voice to be a cousin. I already told apparently you it's number four. <laughs> number four. It's number, number four. four. Anyway, but then just to continue with it, I decided at one point around my bar mitzvah that I wanted to learn um, how to daven. Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It just, I got it into my head that I wanted to learn how to do this, and I was so into it um, that when my parents asked me what, what I want from them for a bar mitzvah present, I said, well, there's a set of cassette tapes of a cantor from New York who, um, you know, just of the liturgy, uh, could I get those? And in 19, well, you have to understand, in 1983, those cassettes, I think it was like eight or nine cassettes, they cost the princely sum of about $65. Whoa. Which, you know, which was money. You know, back still in 1983, $5, you know, got you lunch and a matinee at the movies. So, this is not a Spotify download. Right. No, 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 no. no, no, no. These, were, these were special ordered from New York. We had to go to the Jewish bookstore and he knew where to get it. And it took a few weeks until they arrived. It's like, I got the stuff. <laughs> And the tapes arrived, and I stuck one into the tape recorder, and I opened up a machzor, the prayer book for the high holidays, and began to listen to this cantor. And if you remember the technology, you know, you played two minutes, and then you sang it, and then you rewound. And you kept yeah, on yeah, hitting yeah. and rewinding and hitting. And, of course, you keep on hitting rewind often enough in the same spot of tape. Mm. It wears it out. <laughs> it yep. wears out, wears or, out. It, or it snaps. Um, and then where am I? Then you got to start to splice. But of course, then you then you miss, then a you miss it, and then it skips. <laughs> and my father kids today will never know. <laughs> and the kids, did you remember never... putting? Do you remember putting the pencil? The you pencil know, you used yeah, to put yeah, a pencil yeah. in the hole. Oh, the pencil was nothing. <laughs> um, but then my father again, you know, was watching this, and he says, "This is this is ridiculous. You're not going to learn anything uh, doing it that way." And all of a sudden, I discovered that my father knew how to daven. <laughs> because he began, he began to teach me. And it turns out, I asked my father then, I said, when were you ever a cantor? Where did you ever? Because my father was somebody who never approached the pulpit. He never considered himself, or at least in my lifetime, he never considered himself religiously worthy um, mm. to, be, to be a cantor in a synagogue. I mean, he just absolutely would not. So, so let, me, let me stop you for a second. So for our listeners who are not familiar with Orthodox synagogues or, or whether they're Jewish or not Jewish and they just... They don't, they don't know how things work in an Orthodox synagogue. Um, there, most of the time, there rarely is a professional uh, chazan. Right. Uh, there, there oftentimes uh, may or may not even be a professional rabbi. And the community members, um, there are usually enough community members who can just go up and lead a service, certainly if it's a regular weekday service or even a Shabbat That's service. That's correct, right. And, uh, and, and so people often take turns, and they can do it better. They can do it... Uh, 
less well, but but there's usually a good good handful of people who can just go up and lead a service. Right. So my father never considered himself to be worthy um, to do that. But when I but when he began um, teaching me, it was the shacharit service, the morning service of the high holidays. And I asked him, I said, you know, where do you know this from? And he said, well, everybody knew this in Europe. But then in conversation, it turned out there was one time in his life that he actually was the cantor on the high holidays. And that was when, during the Holocaust, when he was in a Hungarian military force labor brigade. Hungarian Jews of his age were not necessarily deported to the concentration camps, or sometimes they were afterwards, but they were dra- he was drafted into the Hungarian army and put to work in a forced labor brigade with several hundred other Jewish boys his age. Came the high holidays, and they, they were not given leave uh, from the military. My father, however as part of his studies um, in the rabbinical seminary in Budapest, knew the entire machzer, the entire siddur, by heart. Wow. Because this is not the same prayer book we use no. on a weekly basis. This right. is a very different prayer book. And I remember, this I remember as a child also. He used to, he used to daven with, uh, with, with the machzer closed, and all of us as kids, we used to sit around him trying to stump him to see, is he going to get the next word? Is he not going to get the next <laughs> He never made a mistake. Um, but it turned out because he knew the entire liturgy by heart, and you know this is the Hungarian army, the anti-Semitic Hungarian army. There are there were no prayer books that made available. Right. There was nothing, so you know there was nobody else. So actually, yes, he did at that point uh, that year, nineteen forty-four. He led um, the prayers Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur for wow. for those for, the, for those few hundred boys um, in his um, in his labor battalion. Uh, that was the only time uh, he ever did it, but he he, he had a he had a nice knowledge um, of nusach, far more extensive than the average uh, Jewish layperson um, in America uh, would have had. Anyway, I learned eventually. I spent a couple of years. I learned how to lead um, the shacharit service for the high holidays, and then I went away to high school to yeshiva um, in Chicago, the Skokie Yeshiva uh, Seminary. Uh, right, a seminary um, was a was a high school uh, with a you know with a strong Judaic uh, component attached to it. Um, generally, you had it was required that we would be in school Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur and that we would uh, pray um, in the yeshiva. I never liked the way the davening went in yeshivas. Uh, it, it, it took very long. It's aesthetically very very displeasing. Um, it's an exercise in waiting and winking. Uh, in that various rabbis, depending on your stature in the yeshiva, you have to finish later than the than the junior rabbi. So, the rosh yeshiva, the the head of the seminary, should finish his silent devotions last. Is a sign of his intense piety. You got to be holier than the pope, <laughs> right. right? In terms of his piety. So, therefore, I would notice various rabbis glancing around. Well, did the guy you know who has the class above me did he finish it? Because if he hasn't finished that, <laughs> I <laughs> I can't finish after. I just thought this was ridiculous, and it stretched things out interminably. And again, it was aesthetically very displeasing. The only way you got an exemption from being there, at least in Skokie in those years, was if you had a position as a cantor in a synagogue, because they figured. No high school kid is ever going to be able to get a job. <clears throat> so one of my classmates, he lived in a town called Munster, Indiana. I know Munster, Indiana. Right on the border of Chicago. Where Munster cheese comes from? <clears throat> it is not, but I have given, uh, so, so my mother's synagogue, who she is now a rabbi, she wasn't when I was a child, uh, is connected to the federation that sits in Munster, and I've had a couple of uh, webinars 
uh, for that community, and uh, and I think we have a few uh, regular listeners from the Monster community. I so, bet you it's where Monster Cheese comes. So from. shout out to Monster. I don't think so. I don't think you so. You know what my bet would be, and we can Wikipedia this, my bet would be that Munster comes from somewhere in Germany. I think a, so. And the town in Indiana is named after the town in Germany. Possibly. Probably. Anyway, Munster... We're, we're going to look it up while you keep talking. Definitely look it up. Anyway, Munster, Indiana had only a conservative congregation, and there were a few Orthodox families who, at least for the high holidays, wanted to uh, worship in the Orthodox style. So they made a breakaway uh, service in somebody's living room. So my friend, my classmate, and his brother, they were exempt from being in the yeshiva for the high holidays because they had to be nine in, numbers 9 and 10 in the quorum of 10 men for the minion. I went to my friend's father and literally got on my knees and begged him if they would take me as the assistant cantor, in other words, to do the shacharit uh, prayers because I just was bound and determined not to be in yeshiva uh, for the high holidays. And he agreed. And he called the school and said, you know, we really could use an extra body. And um, I understand Daniel Schwartz, you know, would be willing to uh, tear himself away from the yeshiva. And I got the exemption. So I went, I spent the high holidays in Munster, Indiana. I davened Shacharit. It was the thrill of my life. And all of a sudden, after Yom Kippur is over, my friend's mother gave me a check for $120 hey. um, in appreciation for my good work. Ching. And all of a sudden it occurred to me, I got out of being in yeshiva. I was at this friend of mine's house instead of in the dormitory. The food was God knows much better than anything I would have had in the yeshiva. I got to lead prayers and I got paid. And you made a few bucks at the and end. And I made a few bucks. I mean, what what could be better? I was hooked. At that point, I was absolutely hooked. I was cantorial bound. And when I started Yeshiva a, University, a cantor is born. A cantor was born. And when I <laughs> when I started Yeshiva University, I immediately also began taking courses in the Bell School of Jewish Music. Um, interestingly enough, I did not get their diploma um, because I wasn't willing to take the three mandatory classes in Sephardic. Ah, and you should have. I should have. It's a it's a it's a gap. Interesting. Um, but I didn't get the diploma. <clears throat> but I did go on to study privately with voice teachers. Um, I did take some additional music theory courses while I was in law school, and things like that. And it's been a um, it's been a lifetime obsession. And here you uh, are with me ever since. And here I am now in Rehovo talking about it. <laughs> At a time you know when you when you can't do it. Because of the COVID, you can't. Uh, well, I will. What's be, going on with that? Well, what, I will. Well, I well, I will be doing it. We'll get. I mean, it's going to be very, very different this year because um, because of number one, the restrictions that are going to be there, and number two, people's fears. Um, normally, since the time we've we made Aliyah, that we moved uh, from New York to Israel, I've been going to Budapest to one of the synagogues in Budapest um, as their cantor. This year, obviously, I'm unable to do so. Um, not because of the Hungarian end. Actually, Hungary, even though their border is closed, they do have a clergyman's exception. Hmm. Um, I could fly without any quarantine requirements. I could fly in. Are, to, they, are they not on our list of countries where you can come back and not have to quarantine? No, no, no. Hungary, uh, most of Europe, I think, is still closed. We, to, we, to we have five or six countries where you can go and come back and not have yeah, to quarantine. Hungary, not Hungary is not one of them. It's not one of them. It's not, so I, um, but as a clergyman, in other words, if I have, if I have a... Um, some sort of a document from the Jewish community in Hungary, which obviously I would get if I were going, um, and assuming I also have a negative COVID result, I could fly into Budapest two hours before the onset of Rosh Hashanah, go to shul the first night without any problems whatsoever. The difficulty is when I come back, I would have to have be in quarantine in Israel for, for two weeks. 
Um, and I really don't want to spend the holiday of Sukkot right. um, locked up in a room. So this year I'm not going to be going. What it's going to look like this year, nobody really knows. Again, because the high holidays, even here in Israel as well, everybody comes to synagogue. For sure, on Yom Kippur more so than Rosh Hashanah. Then he doesn't. Why you got to look at me like that? <laughs> I'm just saying you don't. Not everyone. But many people. Many people. <laughs> many people. <laughs> people go, and um, so you have large crowds um, in the synagogues. Obviously, you can't have that this year, so you have to stagger the services, which means they're going to have to be cut short. It means a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the auxiliary or ancillary prayers, which have been, which have come in historically into the uh, into the services, are going to have to be cut out. Nobody's quite sure how it's uh, how it's going to look. We know that singing communally or in groups is a super spreader yeah. event potentially, so that's gonna that's going to affect the way the prayers are going to look. Do you think uh, you know? We, three of us were talking before uh, we started recording um, when when we were kind of talking about how to do this uh, episode. Uh, do you think? cutting out you know these auxiliary auxiliary how do you say that word ancillary 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 what am i talking about these ancillary uh uh sections of the of the service um do you think that could have long-term you know ramifications on how the service looks down the road do you think they're going to stay out i don't know if they're going to stay out or they're not going to stay out but it concerns me it concerns me tremendously um <clears throat> what we're talking about are a set of prayers which are called piyutim, uh, which means liturgical poetry. Um, these are not required prayers. In other words, one absolutely can fulfill the obligations that one has to pray without saying them. But these are the prayers which add texture and flavor um, to the the acts of prayer into the holidays. So I'll play devil's advocate for a second here. A lot of people also say they add a lot of time. They do to, add, and um, and something um, that I know is one of your peeves um, is that uh, kind of the crowd, right? The the average, uh, certainly Orthodox Jew in this country, or people who go to Orthodox synagogues, uh, have lost their appreciation and and their patience for high quality um, chazanut for 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 the cantor. Um, and they kind of a lot of people. Okay, you know, it's a four hour service on on Rosh Hashanah. It's a even longer service in Yom Kippur. Only, only four hours. Only four hours. So when I, when I was a kid, it was six, six and a half. So you know, there's kind of this. Uh, you know, on on one hand, there's this notion of okay, let's speed things up, let's get this going. Um, I know at our synagogue where where we both go, and I, and I lead one of these Rosh Hashanah services. We've had a lot of people break off from the the main service where we do have a uh, a cantor. Um, and we do these uh, liturgical poems, and a lot of people have split off to form a breakaway uh, service, a breakaway minyan that's just a lot faster and kind of one of these. Let's get it over with. Let's let's kind of cut some of the, you know, the the flourishes out, and let's get this over with. And uh, okay, so we won't have the singing. And um, do you see a trend, um, kind of in the Jewish world, where people are have lost their appreciation for this? Yes. Yes, um, and there are a lot of reasons for it, but I think you might be better off getting a um, sociologist, a Jewish sociologist, to uh, you know to explain the hows and whys. I have, you know, my. Um, well, what's your take on it? My take on it is a number of different things. I think number one, generally in the world, attention spans um, as technology expands, attention spans diminish. Um, that's ju- that's just the general. And there's a famous old saying in Yiddish: "Via zoy kristelzich, yidelzich." The way the Christians go, so do the Jews. 
Um, so if in the world the tension spans are decreasing or not diminishing, in the Jewish world that's going to happen um, as well, number one. Do you, do you speak Yiddish? A little. I could buy you and sell you, and you would. I have to say, <laughs> for, for the, the look of geeked out on Dan's face right now is beyond anything that I've seen in the history of Dan, Juans. I love it. Dan, you didn't, you didn't know that I speak Yiddish? I do. Of course, we're on the podcast. <laughs> um, so, the, I mean, so that's number one. Number two, I think religiously in the world, skepticism reigns. And religious questioning and religious doubt uh, pervades, and it, it's cyclical, you know, it, throughout the course of Jewish history. We are in a time right now where issues of belief and issues of transcendence and things are evasive and are difficult for people. Prayer, more so than the study of Torah, more so than the study of Jewish holy writ and law, prayer is where one has to confront belief. And if belief is difficult, right. prayer is going to be difficult. Sure. And people generally don't like to do things that are difficult. But I think prayer, there's an added aspect to it because really what is prayer? In the Jewish sense, especially on the high holidays, what are we praying for? You're praying for your life. You're praying for, you're saying, God, despite all of my iniquities, or to, say it, or to say it more colloquially, even though I'm a schmuck, let me live for another year. And prosper. And oh, hopefully prosper. And hopefully prosper. You're begging for your life. Now, if you have a difficult time understanding, in any conceptual sense, what does it mean that there is God in heaven? And what does it mean there's God in heaven that is running things on earth? And if he's running things on earth, he really cares about me, Schwartz, Pfefferman, Skolden. Who are we? What are you know? Me, he cares about. And if you have a if you have a hard time understanding that, and now you got to stand up over there and beat your breast, and parts of the high holiday liturgy actually we prostrate ourselves on the floor. If we're going to start doing, and we don't, and it's a difficult concept for us, of course we're not going to want to do it. That's number one. The second aspect of it is is pedagogical. We're not taught in school what the prayers are, how the machzer, the, the book of prayers, how the, how the rite is structured and what it means, especially in the United States where, you know, I, can, I lived you know, most of, almost all of my entire life. People don't know the meaning, the simple meanings of the words. They don't know how to translate the words of the liturgy. And they're just sort of mumbling it along a lot of times or maybe reading it in an English translation and there are better ones and there are worse ones, worse ones uh, for that. But again, if you don't understand what it's about, then how do you relate to it? And many of these piyutim, the Hebrew is especially difficult. Sometimes they were intentionally written to be difficult. There are many, many references and allusions to verses from the Bible. Why would they be intentionally difficult? Difficult. Because the Paitanim, the ones who wrote, the rabbis who, who wrote it, there was a certain level of displaying their, uh, of strutting their stuff, of displaying their erudition and displaying um, their ability to develop the Hebrew language. Um, Check me out. Look at what I can write and how complex it is. So, wait, so look, I'll play devil's advocate then. I mean, I'm, I'm the one guy here that's not regularly going to uh, the synagogue, but I can definitely pick up on what you said and appreciate it, Dan, which is to say... If the 
bulk of the people that are, let's say, really appreciative of these things are like you, Daniel. And that's terrific. I mean, it, it's, it's kind of similar to let's talk about classical music. Many people, especially professional musicians, are very appreciative of classical music and study it because it's the base. Or they look at it as something that's to be, to be cherished or admonished and, and, and respected. Um, but it is not popular, popular music today. And in order to, let's say, capture the, uh, the will of the masses... Uh, you know, we don't see a lot of people these days trying to make it in classical music uh, in terms of, you know, to scale, selling, you know, thousands and thousands of records. So to play devil's advocate, in order to get people in the pews, let's say, to, to you know, keep their attention uh, in, in 2020, you know, is this something that should be sustained or, or, or you know, remain as a part of the liturgy or should it be... You know, it perhaps it's it's more of a relic of the past. So again, devil's advocate. He's well, looking. No, he's the, he's, he's the he's eyes like, no, no, are no, like no. scowl. You bastard. <laughs> no, I told you I never smile. Um, no. So my first response to that is, what are we aspiring to? All right, and that's and that's not to say to be pejorative um, of anything. Remember, prayer in the Jewish sense, there's a duality to it. There is individual prayer and many and much of the liturgy is designed to sort of direct your thinking and to direct your um, direct your attention toward your individual needs and your individual religious concept prayer is also a communal activity it is something which we come together in, in the orthodox sense of 10 adult men in the non-orthodox sense of 10 adults men and women um, to join together and again, to, I would just say, to approach the divine or to experience and find some level of transcendence. The more you strip away of what we've termed here ancillary prayers, and the more you're only left with what's called classically the matbeah hatfilah, the coin of the prayer, the coin of the realm, the most basic currency of prayer, the fewer chances you get to experience some of those um, some of those other things, because these prayers they do bring out some of the best in religious thinking. That's number one, and number two, what are we aspiring to as a community? Um, I am not somebody who believes that uh, necessarily flamboyant acts of piety necessarily equal a pious person. But I am somebody who believes very much that opportunities have to be created and maintained for people to grow and develop themselves religiously. Um, and if you keep on taking these things away, then to what are we going to aspire? It's one thing to say, all right, there is a group, there's a section of liturgy or, or vast swath of liturgy, which I don't understand um, and I don't relate to particularly well. Okay. That presents a challenge to a community and to an individual to relate to it and to learn it and to understand it. Um, I think just simply saying, well, let's cut it out and leave it as a relic of the past is a bit of a cop-out. Um, and again, what are, you, and what, are you, what are you leaving yourself with? The more you denude, the more you strip away, the more the temptation to strip away more and more is going to be there. And ultimately, you're going to be left with very, very little, if anything at all, 
with which to do, you know, with which to do. And then it's going to create the question of, well, why have synagogues at all? Right. Well, uh, let me, let me ask here. Cause, um, Benny, when you, when you, uh, spoke earlier, you, you talked about, at least the way I understood it, you were talking about the style and if the style, the musical style was a relic of the past. So we, we maybe we actually have two questions here. So one is that some people who are, who are synagogue goers, right? We know a lot of, a lot of Jews go maybe once or twice a year or don't go at all. But I call them H2O Jews, H2O high holidays Jews. only. There you go. Um, but, but in Israel, I know certainly about 30 or 40% uh, of Jews regularly on a weekly basis at least go to synagogue, 30 or 40%. Uh, in America, it's actually the numbers are not that much uh, uh, further from that, um, a, little, a little less than here. But th- there's two questions here. One is that you see some people... Um, and you see this in the Orthodox crowd, people who go every day or every week who just kind of don't have the patience, but it's something they need to do because they're committed to the religious practice. So, yalla, let's speed it up. Let's get it over with. Okay, we don't need the embellishments, etc. Then you have another crowd that I'm noticing that thinks that they're happy to sing and they're happy, but they want it to, they think the style is outdated. They think the the, the old European cantorial we'll call it the classical uh, cantorial style is outdated and and they're into participatory they want everyone to be able to sing together simple melodies if people are familiar with Karlibach and uh, kind of that revel i don't know if it's a revolution in jewish music or or the way the um hasidic uh, communities um where, where you have kind of simple melodies sometimes there's not even words there's just you know yadi dadi or, or these kind of things and everyone sings together and it, it's maybe a little ecstatic um, so I'm curious to hear your trends as someone who's kind of into that classical type of, of uh, European chazanut. What's your take on this more participatory, simpler musical style? Okay. Um, I like it and I hate it. <laughs> no, let me, let me explain. All right. Um, and it's good that you directed us, you know, that way. <clears throat> I'll, I'm going to start out. I'm going to ask a question. Um, in the Amida, in the silent devotion of the Sab- of, of Shabbat morning, this is the, the, cent- this, the most central part of the Jewish prayer. Right, the more central yeah. part in the morning, in the Sabbath morning prayer. After you go through the standard first three blessings, which are standard to every single Amida, you have three paragraphs, which are the core of the Sabbath um, Amida before the three final blessings, which are again are standard to every single Amida. What the first one begins, Yismach Moshe b'matnat chelko. Moses rejoiced in the gift that was given to him of the Sabbath. That segues in to three verses from the Bible, Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et HaShabbat, that the Jewish people have observed the Sabbath as an everlasting covenant between them and God. And then the third paragraph picks up on that theme, V'lo natato Hashem elokeinu legoyei haratzot. God did not give the Sabbath, to anybody else Except the but Jews. to the Jewish people. Three vastly different ideas expressed in each of those paragraphs. And I've asked this to people. And these are core ideas that you could say. Core you know, ideas you know, of belief. In Judaism, right. Now, I've asked this question to people you know, who like to lead prayers. And there's no right answer. But the question is, which of those three resonates the most with you? There's no right answer. It's a question of who you are and how you relate to these different kinds of ideas. But which one means the most to you? And when you decide which one of those paragraphs, for example, means the most to you, the next question is, okay, you are there, you're at the Amud, you're at the Bima, you're on the podium from which the cantor 
leads the prayer. How are you going to convey that resonant meaning to a congregation standing behind you? Because you can't all of a sudden stop and say, hey, guys, this is the one that I, which I think is really important, and here's why. Yeah, let, let's get serious now, and let's reflect on right. this. Right? That, I mean, that's, you know, that happens in other things. That happens in a Talmud study class or in a Bible study class where you can say, yeah, you know, these are the things that are really important, or in a, or in a classroom setting about what the Siddur is, what the Book of Prayers is. But when you're standing there in the act of prayer, and you hit a section of the text, which is powerful to you and you want to convey that to your congregation because that is what a cantor is a cantor is like a rabbi except it's a rabbi with music it is the cantor who is conveying and creating meaning of the prayers to the congregation through through the music through the music and for example i want to play one um one section this is this is uh let me talk while you set this up this is something that we've discussed uh the three of us have discussed privately before um, and this is something that maybe it's why I appreciate um, uh, cantorial music on an instinctive level, and, and I think you were able to express that, and maybe uh, my hope at least is if, if people listen to this, and, and, and uh, I'd be glad if you explained it a little more in depth, that, you know, um, I never thought about it this way. The job of the cantor, and, and, the, and not just the cantor, but but the person who wrote the music, who thought about this, or the people who thought about this, who sat down with the text and said, okay, how do we convey the emotion that you're supposed to feel according to this section of the text as the text is changing from um, from section to section of the prayer? How do you get to connect that to people on the most um, cerebral, or, or not cerebral, maybe the most, um, what's the opposite of cerebral? Brainstem. Well, <laughs> cerebellular, cerebellular, I think. Yeah, like uh, the, where they're not thinking Emotional. about it. Where, primal. Like, uh, primal or, yeah, or primal. intuitive primal. level. Right. How do you connect people to the emotion that they should be feeling according to the person? The you know What did the writer intend? Well, I'm not necessarily talking, even talking about feeling or emotion. I'm talking about directing people's thoughts. So one selection, it's a, it's a bit long, but it's, it's an amazing well, piece. Let's hear a small part of it. Well... Like I, that'll be a little bit harder to do, but anyway, okay. um, it's it's worth hearing the whole thing anyway. Um, it's a piece out of the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. Moloch Kol Haolam Kulo Bichvodecha. It's from the end of the kingship, the kingship section of the after of the supplementary service on Rosh Hashanah. So this is on the the uh, Jewish New Year Rosh Hashanah, and this is one of the main services of the year. Yes, and it was written by a cantor. His name was. Um, uh, Zeidel Rovner was actually his uh, his nickname. He was a chazan in a town called Rovno um, in Poland. Um, very, very interesting, wonderful cantor. It's sung by a cantor. His name was Moshe Genshoff, who was one of the greats of the golden age of cantorial music in the um, early and mid-20th uh, century in the United States. Play through it, and then I'll cue you in um, to the section um, as, we, as we approach it. Um, I'll tell you where I want you to pay specific attention. So here we go. Oh, Father, 
When, when, when was it recorded? What, 
This was recorded, I think, sometime in the 1950s. Wait, does this mean I don't have to go to Rosh Hashanah services now? No, you do. Oh. Um, Wait, so take take us through this. Okay, uh, kind of like a, a play-by-play play analyst. Awesome. Yeah. A play-by-play play analyst. Um, so what you've heard so far, you know, this is... Watching a football game here. So the structure over here is you had a series of verses from the Bible about God's dominion on earth. And then you come into the actual blessing section. And it begins, Elokeinu velokeavotenu, God of our fathers. Meloch al kol haolam kulo bichvodecha. Reign supreme over the entire world in your glory. And appear to us in your kingly splendor. Okay. The way it starts is with the bass um, soloist. Right. So, so that was not the main canter. Yeah, that, was, that was a soloist. That wasn't the main event. That was, that was a soloist. And you almost feel like this undulating wave going on there because the bass begins to sing that phrase and then all of a sudden the choir joins into him and these waves and waves and it builds up it's angelic sounding right it's it's almost angelic and it's almost it's although it's supposed it's supposed to be proclaiming god's kingdom and inviting god to reign is almost there's a ple- there's a, a pleading aspect to it as well. Da, 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 and then all of a sudden, when you've had about as much of that as you can take, all of a sudden comes the cantor. All of a sudden, he brings this into you and says, "God," and his is, voice is, pierces it, like it really right. pierces. God the, the is the king, but then. He gets to a section, everybody will know, everyone who has action, who has movement, will know that you created his his movement. Everyone who was created will know that you created. And all those who have a soul within them will proclaim. That God is gone. He repeats over and over and over again in different tones. Over, you keep on hearing this. And then if you continue into the piece, he'll go back to Vieda Kol Paul and start that section again. And he'll get again to Vyomar Kola Sher Nishama Bapo and he'll start a bit he'll start a duet with the bass. Where he'll say it, and the bass will bring in on the bottom. Now, put yourself in the great synagogue of Rovno Poland around, I think, 1886, 1887, when this premiered. And it had never been heard before. So this composition goes back to... goes back about that far, the 1890s, I think. Now put yourself there. You're sitting in the pews. And all of a sudden, Zeidel Rovner, who was a very rabbinic-looking man, he had a long beard almost down to his belly button, very pious man, and he's he's at the podium... And this piece starts. Now, back then in Europe, it's probably somewhere somewhere close to about 1.15 in the afternoon uh, when you hear this. And you hear a cantor say maybe a dozen times or 15 times, And everyone who has a soul within him will proclaim. And you hear it once, twice, three, seven, eight, ten, twelve times. And, and at this time, 
the average Jew would understand what they're hearing? Maybe. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully, Hopefully yes. Now, you can respond to that two different ways. You can say, get on with it. Oh, God. What are you? Stop. Okay. Souls. People. Okay. Move. Or maybe you're going to stop for a minute and you're going to think, what does that mean to have a soul? What does that mean to be imbued with a soul? The Chazin certainly thinks that this is important because he's not getting off of those three words, those, 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 those couple of words. What is that? What is a soul? What does that mean? And, and hence he's driven the message home. Of, of He's driven the, the message liturgies. home. That's correct. And, and he's done it in a time. He said, imagine yourselves. There's no technology. There's no uh, you know, uh, YouTube. There's no cell phones, MP3 players. There's nothing else going on. Okay, This is, and you're in Rovno in Poland, and you're in a synagogue with your entire community. This is like the main gig in town. This is the central entertainment piece that you're probably going to hear. Correct. So there's also that aspect of it as well. I mean, you're you're obviously thinking about what he's saying. You're you're getting into that feeling. My assumption would be that there are very few people sitting in the building that reflect the first person that you talked talked about, which is the no yeah, Let's get this over with already. This is going on and on. It's probably like, whoa! Like I'm being blown away because I'm sitting here and it's you know 2020, and I heard that recording from the 50s, and when the Chazan comes on. You know that that took me to I don't know about you guys, but that takes me to kind of like a profound place because it does. Yeah. he's absolutely goosebumps you know, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I can only imagine I mean, if you're sitting in Poland in the 1890s and that comes. But but you hear forward, a lot, you you hear a lot of people. It's very uh, you hear a lot of people, and I, and I want to get back to you breaking this down for us. But you hear a lot of people who sit, who don't connect to that because they haven't been exposed to it. Because they've not been exposed to it. you. See, you talked about you talk, you know you you mentioned for example Dan. Um, you know, the participatory aspect that things are very, very, um, are into, you know, people want to participate, they want to sing, they want to clap. I have problems with the clapping and the dancing um, during during davening because I just don't think it's dignified. But that's, you know, that's me. I, I don't smile. Um, <laughs> Daniel's of the old school. Very much the old school. Um, you know, my wife, and many people always say that I was born about 30 or 40 years too late. I can see that. Um, but, Aside from that, I, I'm all in favor of participatory um, davening of people of, commu- of of congregational singing and people because otherwise it gets tedious. It can get very very boring. It gets, it gets difficult for a person to sit, especially because attention spans are what they are these days. But the the idea that in order for somebody to derive meaning from a, from a prayer service. He has to actively participate at all times. And the sections where he's not going to be able to actively participate have to be done quickly. It, it, it bespeaks and betokens a certain level of immaturity, in my opinion, it, and arrogance. It, it, the immaturity there is that what you don't have the patience to sit and listen to somebody who has spent years of, of his life or her life, if you're, if you're in a non-Orthodox setting, has spent years studying this, has developed an expertise in its history, both in terms of the text and its history in terms of music, and has something to give over to you, has something to teach you, which you might not necessarily get to on your own. And you're not willing and you're unable to sit still for a few minutes and and listen to that and absorb it and listen to it. 
That's exactly how I feel about our listeners that don't listen to our entire podcast. Sit still and listen. Just you're listen. Gonna, you're going to get something out of this. But no, but it's, Blood, sweat, and tears are going into this, people. But yes, but, and, and there's a certain level of... There's a certain level of immaturity and also arrogance of saying, well, nobody has anything to teach me. I'm going to have to, I do, I do everything for myself and I'm not interested in what anybody else has to do. It's in my opinion, it just, it's, it's lacking. You deprive yourself of a tremendous amount of experience. You also deprive yourself of the opportunity to sit and think and ponder some of the very big questions because if you're dancing and working up the sweat and clapping and singing at the top of your voice you're feeling though and the but people, what are you feeling you're feeling you're feeling what are uh, you spiritual you're feeling god you're feeling whatever it is you, you know, come to, the risk, to feel at the risk of being profane that's spiritual masturbation because it's not can, can we use it on the youtube clip spiritual right. masturbation hell yeah all right what you're doing is you're releasing endorphins and that's all fine and good. I have, it's great. It's wonderful. It has its place in synagogue as well. Simchat Torah. You get up, you dance. When you have a simcha in Shul, you have a bar mitzvah, you have a Shabbat chatan, the, you know, the, the Shabbat before, before people get married. There's plenty of time to sing, dance, and clap, even within a service itself. But if that's, if that's all you want out of synagogue, and that's all you're going to want out of the davening experience. So you're saying you're missing the point. You're missing a huge part of the point. Mm. Now, for example, I said, you know, for me, davening and chazanut is an intellectual exercise. The emotional aspect of cantorial music, then, which was something that you... Um, That's what I connect to. We elect to. Okay, so here, listen to the next, next piece, which is taken out of the Hallel prayer, which is a series of psalms which are recited on the festivals, psalms of praise of God. This particular paragraph, Ahavti, um, which speaks about a very, very deep, almost romantic love between God and the Jewish people. It was composed by a cantor, Leib Glantz, um, who you could speak for hours and hours and hours about Glantz and the contribution that he made to cantorial music and to Jewish culture um, and who he was. When did he live? Glantz was born around 1910, 1915. He died in the 1960s in Tel Aviv. Interestingly enough, he was an extremely religious man, and he was a mapainik. Mm. <laughs> he, he was a, an extremely religious man who kind of supported the left part left of, wing, the labor. left secular party in That's Israel. Correct. Politics. And as a matter of fact, he, when, he, when he wanted to move to Israel from Los Angeles, he couldn't get a job in a shul because the shuls in Israel were all under the control of the Mizrahi party. Right. And they told him, if you want to get a job as a cantor in Israel, you have to leave the mapai. He'd been a mapainik in Europe, in Eastern Europe. And he said, if you want to leave, um, you want to get a job as a cantor in Israel, you have to leave the mapai and join the Mizrahi, which he refused to do. Yeah, Israel in the 50s, uh, 60s, and maybe even the 70s was... uh, And the 21st century. If you didn't belong to certain political parties, you couldn't get jobs in certain places. Um, And he wound up getting a job in a very, very small back alley sort of synagogue in Tel Aviv, which he turned into a mecca. Of culture, his midnight slichot, the penitential prayers, which he initiated, which would be initiated the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah, people, thousands of people lined the streets to try to listen to it. The man was such an intellectual in terms of the cantorial, in terms of cantorial music, as a child in the Ukraine, because he was interested in the origins of Jewish synagogue music. He frequented the Karaite synagogues in the Ukraine, to hear how the Karaite Jews worshipped 
to find similarities between Karaite prayer and traditional Jewish prayer. I mean, this was the level... Well, hey, the- yeah, there's an interesting side story that we have to take, uh, and this might warrant a future episode down the line. Uh, but the Karaites, uh, am I pronouncing that correctly? Karaites, yeah. Karaites. The Karaites. This is a, uh, what is it, 8th, ninth century offshoot of Judaism who do not accept, correct me if I'm wrong, they do not accept rabbinic Judaism. They only accept the... Well, they have their own rabbinic tradition. Uh, but the literal word of the Torah, and they eventually... More, so, so exactly. please explain. Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not really much of an expert in it, but they are an off. They are an offshoot um, of Judaism. They have their own rabbinic tradition, uh, sort of. They are the ones who originated really the, the deep grammatical study um, mm. of the Bible in terms of the Hebrew language. And they uh, have a presence in the Ukraine, right? They had a presence in the Ukraine yeah. and in Egypt and all over the world. Anyway, here is Leib Glantz's Ahafti. Remember, this is about a romantic love between God and the Jewish people. This is from the Psalms. From the Psalms. Afti, Afti, Kishma, Kishma Dushe, Et Koli. How, um, and, and by the way, if people can pick up on that static, it's just because these are old yeah. uh, phonograph recordings, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, how old is that uh, melody, as far as you know? This was recorded probably sometime in the 1950s, 90, early 1960s. This was toward the end of his career. No, but were written. When was that melody, oh, when was that composition it? written? Also. It's his, it's his composition. It's his composition. This is very contemporary. This is also... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just reading a little bit about his, about his life. I mean, this character... Thank you for talking about him for a second, because I just... You've, you've put me into a rabbit hole here, where I'm just, as I'm listening to this, I'm reading about him. We love rabbit holes. He was a child prodigy. Yes, which is incredible, and it'd be a child prodigy in Kiev in in the you know the turn of the twentieth century, eighteen ninety eight, born in uh, in 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 what is now Ukraine in it was Kiev. Born eighteen ninety eight. Okay, so right. I, I don't remember. That. Um, it's just a fascinating life. I mean, he he was a huge Zionist back back in, in his youth. He attended and, he, attend, he attended World Zionist conferences, and uh, and when stuff started to get uncomfortable towards the Jews in what was then Bessarabia, he you know he he decided to leave Eastern Europe, and his plan was to get to uh, mandatory Palestine, to the land of Israel, but somehow pre state Israel, right? Right, pre state Israel, but somehow. Uh, on the way, he was persuaded to go to the United States to record some of his compositions with RCA. Mm-hmm. And then he was offered a job at a congregation in New York, and he stayed. And then he went to Los Angeles, where he had two very, very uh, prestigious pulpits. And from Los Angeles, he came to Israel. He was an amazing, amazing... And he has... And for those people who are really geeks, and you're going to have to you know, indulge oh, yourself you're, you're in really this, getting to the rabbit hole. There is a small street named after him in Tel Aviv. Yes. In uh, in near off of Kibbutz Galuyot in South Tel Aviv, which is uh, interestingly enough placed sandwiched in between uh, Hakinor Street, so the Harp Street. Then there's Lebglan Street, and then there's Haugav Street, the organ. 
So he's the, he's the tenor. He's the main event sandwiched between love the it. musical instruments. Love it. Exactly. Which is kind of cool. It, it almost started, you know, said it's a love song, uh, a hafti I, I loved. Um, it, it almost starts out kind of like in that, uh, you know, that mid, uh, mid-20th mid century crooner style. Well, yes, because Glantz, he studied composition with a composer, a Russian composer named Reinhold Glier. Um, Glantz was into 12-tone, was into 12-tone music. Okay, so for, for those of us like me who don't know what that means? Um, it's a very, very contemporary chromatic um, uh, scale. It's, it's hard for me to, to explain it. It's, it's, cont- it's very contemporary 20th century style art, um, artistic uh, music in the continuation of the classical um, tradition. Um, and many it, it involves what are called semitones and dissonant tones, um, like we hear these little lintings, ahafti. Yeah. In other words, there aren't real, for, the real hard steps that you would hear, let's say, in, in, in Bach or in Mozart. Um, so, yes, it is a little bit croonerish. It's, that was sort of how his voice was um, a bit. Uh, again, you can go on for hours and hours and hours. Um, Do you have his book? Uh, what, The Man Who Talked to God? Yeah. I have all of his books. I have, of bo- I, I have, <laughs> I have the books. I have the books. I have the books that he prepared for his students to teach them chazanot. I have the book Zacharim, which was written after he was after he um, after he passed away. And in terms of the man who talked to God, which was put out by his, his son, son, the Doctor Jerry Glantz. Doctor Jerry Glantz. I Jerry Glantz invited me to write the book review, the official book review of the um, oh, wow. of the book, which was published in a journal in America. Does called Jerry Shakira. does Jerry dabble in the uh, cantorial arts? I don't believe he does, except okay. he does dabble tremendously in promoting his father's legacy, and he's done a wonderful job um, doing that. Well, he's um, also his father was one of the the founding members of Akum here in Israel. Akum is the the Israel Music Institute. So anytime you have an event hmm. where you play music. You have to pay, or publicly, you have to pay a royalty fee to Akum. So, really? like your wedding in Israel, you have to pay to Akum. If you have a bar mitzvah, you have to pay something symbolic to Akum. So, I guess he was on one of those people that he found it important that musicians get paid for their for their work. Right. So. As a matter of fact, the other thing that Glantz's main, his big, big contribution was he established, he developed one of the most important theories of the origins of Nusach, of the prayer modes, the scales. In which so are, are you, which are you taking prays. us now into the origins of the cantorial arts? Uh, just for a minute. No, take us more than a minute. Um, well, just you know, very very briefly. Um, what what Glantz essentially said was like this: Jewish music, synagogue music, develops from the cantillations of the Bible, and he said those cantillations are ancient. Those cantillations probably go back to the time of the Second um, Commonwealth. The Second Temple. The Second Temple. So we're talking 2,000 years ago. Yes. I, vesti- I mean, you're talking about vestigial you know, uh, relationships. <laughs> you're not talking about hard and fast. But what he was able to notice was that the ta'amim hamikrat, or what's called in Yiddish, trop, which are the, the signs of the cantillation and the patterns of the cantillations, they are actually Greek tetrachord scales, four-note scales, pentachord, five-note scales, heptachord, seven-note scales, and octachord, eight-note scales. All right. Every, I think we're gonna... wait. So, so, if, and for anyone who's ever been in a synagogue, this includes uh, Reform, Conservative, and uh, uh, we'll talk about Sephardic uh, different in, a, in a, maybe in a different breath here. Um, the way there's a traditional way that every Jewish diaspora has reads the Torah, but it's, it's supposed to be a unified way, right? Well, the Ashkenazim, the Ashkenazim, let's say from Germany to Poland to Hungary to Lithuania, there are some differences, 
but generally the pattern is is sort of the, the same. In other words, right. in other words, if a Lithuanian Jew would go to walked into shul in Germany to hear the Torah being read, it wouldn't sound entirely foreign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's something you learn. It's not something you make up. You right? There's little. Um, um, there are signs. There's signs. There are Sign markings. markings. And that's kind of like an old, you're saying that's kind of like an old ancient uh, form of musical notes. Yes. yes. Every Jew that has had a bar mitzvah has had to learn Trump. Has had to learn Trump. And you sit there in these little markings and, and you, that's, you know, it's kind of like the hyperbolic, uh, uh, you know, child that's, hating his bar mitzvah. It's the rite of passage. Hebrew school yeah, pass. it's you have the to rite of passage. But so Glantz, that's what we're talking about. But what Glantz noticed was that those trope are based upon built up Greek musical patterns. And we know that the, in the second Beit HaMikdash, in the second temple, the music was heavily influenced by Greek music because Jews have always absorbed Greek from the preva- no from the prevailing culture from, from the surrounding culture in which sure. you know in which in which they find themselves. Can you can you give us an example of what it sounds like? What trop? Yeah, give us an example of a line from the Torah um, for our listeners who are not familiar. So those are the opening lines of the Torah of the Old right. Testament. Right. It sounds Greek to me. It's a little <laughs> Zorbish. So, but there are a series of these notes, and each one of them has at least two pentac- two two tetrachords, or a tetrachord and a pentachord. These are four or five note patterns, which create them. And out of there, and every single set of books in the Bible has its own cantillation system. The five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, has a different system of cantillation than do the prophets. All right. What, are the, what does the prophet sound like, basically? That was the opening verse of the Haftorah from my Bar Mitzvah. <laughs> Sidra, the portion of my week. It's the opening from, from, the book, uh, from Parshat Shemot, the first, the first uh, section of the book of Exodus. Um, and then you have the Megillot. The scrolls. The scrolls, you have two different systems there. You right. have Esther. Which we read on Purim. Um, which we read on Purim, right? Um, okay, you have that. You mm-hmm. have the Shirashirim. Right, Song of Songs. Song of Songs, which is also for Ecclesiastes and for the Book of Ruth. Mm-hmm. And then you have Echa, the Book of Lamentations. And what Glantz essentially established was that Nusachatvila, the modes with which in which we pray, grow out of cantillation. Out of these two, two and a half thousand year old musical traditions. That's correct. And it gets broken up into a couple of different patterns. There is one, which is the main ones, at least. There is, And what Glantz called, for example, for the five books of Moses, he called that the Jewish major. Mm. Okay? Which is also similar to a Mixolydian type of scale, for those, for those listeners who, who know music. A Mixolydian scale is a type of pattern of music. Um, I can get into the technical definition of it, but it's not really necessary. In cantorial music, it is referred to as um, a few different ways. It can be referred to as the Hashem Malach, which patterns a, cer- a, ju- a certain psalm, Hashem Malach Geyut Lavesh, which comes out of the Friday evening liturgy. It's also referred to as Nusach Yukum Purkan, 
Kumpurkan being the appendage to prayers to the Torah service um, on the Sabbath. Um, and it goes essentially like this. Arbaim shana kut bedor v'homar amtoei levavheim v'heim liadud rachai asher nishbat ibiapi himyavon el menuchati. And that is used for the Friday night service. It is used for sections of the supplementary service on uh, Shabbat and on the holidays in the Kedusha, the sanctification prayer. It's also used for Yukum Purkana, which is something which is never chanted anymore out loud. Um, why? But why? Laziness. Time. People don't know how to do it. Um, you know. And then what Glantz came and said was that the Haftarah, the prophet um, trope, that's what's called what he called the Jewish minor, and that is what's used. Is that why I like it so much? Um, well, because we I've, like to we like to fetch and minor is. I've you know, always been attracted to minor chords. I've noticed. So, and that is used, for example, in the introductory section of the Shacharit prayer on Shabbat uh, morning. Shochenad marom vekadoshemo. All right, sections uh, like that. It's used in, in a number of other places um, as well. Now, you also have the other systems there as well of the trope. A great cantor learns these modes and learns these scales and the sub-motifs within them and begins to build art out of that. Because, you know, Ganchov, who we heard before in the, in the Maloch prayer, he had a very famous line, he had a very cute line where he said, Nusach teaches you how to start and how to finish. The middle is up to you. In other words... There's, it gives you a framework within which to frame um, and to plot out how you're going to present the davening. But after that, it's up to your interpretation and it's up to your, it's up to the individual cantor's understanding of the prayer and the way he wants to interpret it and how he wants to move. So, so traditionally, um, you're not getting a sheet of music um, and maybe... Well, you can. You can. You but. can. There are compositions and various, pra- various cantors have written out nusach. In other words, they prepared you know, written out um, expositions, musical expositions. So, of, so on a more basic level, for anyone, someone who can read Hebrew and who can read music can learn Nusach. Can learn it. Yes. For example, when I studied, you know, every cantor these days when he studies in the, for the cantorate. Even you, Dan. Even me. Every cantor when he studies for the cantorate is given a set of Nusach to learn. I mean, you know, you know and... I've le- I've gone through in various sections. I've gone through four or five or six different written out, um, you know, sets of nusach. Um, you know, this is how you brought in your uh, this is how you brought in your your uh, your knowledge base. And based upon an expanded knowledge base, obviously, you can do more and more interesting uh, things. So, so it is kind of like a, a jazz musician in the end, where oh. you you have to you have to really know music and you have to know the nusach, as you say. And then once you have that, you can. Then, so and then take it where you want to go. So the similarities between jazz in terms of the impro- in terms of the improvisational yeah. sense of it, or at least the and an Eastern European styled chazan, because Western Europe is more is more about set pieces mm-hmm. and less about expansion of nusach and things like that. Um, yes, the relationship is absolutely there. And if you think about Jewish jazz klezmer mm-hmm. music, I have long maintained only a chazan can really understand klezmer music. And klezmer musicians have insights into cantorial music, which many other people are not going to have because of that improvisational 
tradition and just that idea of of of, of, of hitting on a riff. Right, and it's coming from the same tradition as well. It's coming from the same geographical locations. It's and a lot of the, the and a lot of the klezmer culture. scales and a lot of the klezmer scales are very very similar. Yes, right. absolutely. So, wait, then what's the you said Eastern European? So what would be the difference between Western European and Eastern European uh, Western, traditions? Western Europe. Because you know they're Germanic and German, Germ, Germanic people are very precise and are very mm. set and more a little bit more rules oriented. <laughs> Western Europe has more is less improvisational. It's more set traditional pieces. There's the, there's the music and and play. It. There's the music and sing. It. I mean, for example, I once heard a a, a, a um, an interview with an old Hungarian cantor. His name was Shlomo Mandel. He was a great chazan. He was talking about his days um, in when he was a cantor in Vienna before World War II. Now, Vienna, the Viennese synagogue music tradition, is dominated by a 19th century cantor named Solomon Zulzer. And there's very good reason why it dominates. First of all, he was the cantor in um, Vienna, the chief cantor. And number two, Zulzer was among the earliest pioneers who began to write down in a systematic fashion the traditional synagogue melodies. And where there were gaps and things that weren't necessarily known, he created, based upon the tradition, he created compositions. Um, we sing, even the Orthodox synagogues, we sing his compositions till this very day. Like what? That's iconic. It's iconic. This is the Torah service. People think that is absolutely the melody which harkens back to Moses at Sinai. <laughs> well, but that, but okay, but that leads me. But that's a great segue to my next point, which is that we all go to synagogue and and, and listening to this uh, you know, recording of the podcast is bringing me back to you know memories of, of my youth, and it's it's been very nice. But like we all thought or believe, and I up until this point, like that these are I won't say ancient, but very 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 old traditional melodies that could harken back to the middle ages let's just say okay well, some so, of them do and so, and i'm sure some of them do but when you're when you're looking at uh the biography let's say of of Leib Lentz, okay which and, you right. just did which which i just <laughs> did and you're seeing how it's it's only starting to be academically studied at that sort of a level where there where somebody is theorizing the origins of jewish melodies dating back to the second temple the you know that understanding is only starting to take place in the 20th century itself this is not an art form where we can say that you know the practitioners of it the the chazan, you know the chazanim themselves can't say you know yes this is uh, you know we are a, a a piece in a long line of chazanim that go back yes, we can. this you can yes we can yes we can because trope the cantillation systems have remained with us for centuries and centuries, and the Nusach is based upon it. Now, you're segueing into the next part of Nusach, which is what I referred to before as the Messinai melodies. If you remember, I said there are certain right. melodies in the Ashkenazic tradition which are so hoary with age, they may as well have come down from Moses on Sinai, right. and we refer to them as Messinai. And, and you know which ones are which? We know, exa- we know exactly which ones there. I have the list. Um, <laughs> he actually does have a list. I have notes, yes. Um, and... Those are the ones where there is no improvisation. You absolutely must give us a good Messina melody. So I'll give you the list of them first, and then I'll and I'll and I'll, and I'll sing you I'll sing you snippets of each and every one of them. Let me just find it on my list. And are these things also that like a, a you know a today reform or conservative Chazan cantor would a conservative an Orthodox Chazan absolutely must and will probably 
assuming he knows it because there's a tremendous amount of ignorance. A conservative cantor certainly will know about it, and I believe the critical mass of them will still hew to these. The reform cantor that I really can't speak about, I don't have tremendous experience with them. Well, we could assume that there are certain they people certain, or they certainly certain learn, things they certain, that are just they certainly learn the about base it in, of right. theory. The reform, right. the reform cantors, I believe, certainly learn about it. Whether they actually do it or not, um, I don't know. My knowledge of reform cantorial music ends at about 1950. Because after as, that, as far as I know, and I do, I do know some professional reform chazanim, uh, and, and I was a uh, actually my before we became Orthodox, my wife was on her path to become uh, a reform chazanit. Um, I think, I think, and, and I'll be happy if if any of our listeners want to correct us. Uh, I think that they read music. Oh, they definitely do. No, but they, they don't improvise. I think. No, they no. The reform the reform cantors generally also will have set pieces, um, but again, I've cer- they certainly learn the Mycenae mm. traditions um, in school. No question about that, because it's so fundamental to a cantorial training. And they do four years of HUC yeah, uh, yeah. cantorial. Basically, right. Eli was going to be a reform chazanit. That was um, that was the big thought. You know, she studied um, uh, music theory and and voice. In college and Jewish studies, uh, call her and ask a question. <laughs> that, that Make a cameo, that cameo appearance. Uh, okay. so, so give us some. So Mesinai here are so from here, Sinai here are the Mesinai. The first one is called Hamelech, the King, which is the opening of the Shacharit prayer of the High Holidays. I know this one. Hamelech, This is a Messina melody. Have to absolutely hew to that. The next one is even more famous: the Aleinu of the High Holidays. You absolutely must sing this melody. Aleinu l'shabeach l'adon hakol. Now, there's a section of the Aleinu which forms the basis of two other things which are also essentially sacrosanct, the Kol Nidre comes out of Aleinu. There's a section in the Aleinu. Lifnei melech malchei hamlachim hakadosh baruch which is the basis of the Kol Nidre melody, which is sung on Yom Kippur Eve to, uh, to usher in the uh, Yom Kippur holiday. It's one of my most favorite and deeply spiritual moments of the Jewish year. And by the way, the text of Kol Nidre owes a tremendous um, amount of gratitude to the melody. Because were it not for the melody of Kol Nidre, I don't think anybody would pay any attention to that text whatsoever. It is one of the most dry legal texts of the prayer uh, of, of, of our liturgy and you're all, a lawyer saying this. all all vows and promises and commitments and undertakings that i have so made like, from the past year until this year may they be nullified and canceled and that's I mean, that's yeah, all, it's horrible not horrible i mean it just it's, it's a dry, very very it's dry, dry legal text. Dry, no not, not horrible horrible but it's like it's horribly yeah, yeah. dry it's horribly it's, dry you know you would have to invent the melody in and order age, to and aj heschel to, yeah. and, and aj heschel said very famously kol nidre is about the melody nobody cares about the text <laughs> and by the way how true is that in berlin in the 19th century in the early days of german reform judaism kol nidre as a text 
was excised completely because they felt it's a disgrace. The idea that on our most solemn day, this is what, uh, you have to, and you have to have some sympathy for it. They, these reformed Jews, they said, on our most solemn, holiest of days, how do we start it out? We don't keep our word. We don't keep our promises. <laughs> and they said, this is just absolutely awful. How do we proclaim to the world? Now, in the Jewish tradition, because vows are something that are so serious, and the idea that we might start the year with unfulfilled vows is so terrifying that therefore, yes, we came up with this mechanism where we'll form rabbinic court to forgive us of our vows, which is a long, complicated sugya, subject of, of Talmudic law, which incidentally I just studied this past winter. Um, you know, because that, that, the idea is because we are so afraid of promises and we so don't want to make them. So if we actually wound up getting into a promise and then we weren't able to fulfill it 110%, it's terrifying to us, and therefore we need to get out of this burden, which is what it was about. But the Reformed Jews, you know, they took the obvious, what, what, you know, what is this? But it, but Louis Lewandowski, who was the composer and the music director in the great Reformed synagogue in Berlin, he took a section of the Psalms, I forgot which chapter of the Psalms, and set it to the melody of Kol Nidre, because... The melody was so fundamental to Yom Kippur. It's not Yom Kippur if you it's don't not, hear right. that it music. It resonated in the hearts and minds so, of so many. And parts. I think I think this goes across in the Ashkenazi world. Um, this goes across all denominations. That's correct. So these Reformed German Reformed Jews. I mean, I just think of my mom. It's like I, I know that uh, whose birthday it is today. Shout out that's to Nancy. True. Happy, Happy birthday, Happy birthday, Nancy. Uh, you know, she tells me at every opportunity. You know, the most. You know, and she goes to a reform synagogue. The most important, you know, uh, spiritual, deep, profound movement of her religious year is to sit in synagogue and to hear Kol Nidre. Right. To hear Kol Nidre. And I know for a fact that she doesn't know what the words mean. Because I asked her and she said she doesn't know what the words mean. She has to read along the translation. But when she's hearing that melody being played, She's remembering being a girl sitting in the synagogue, sitting That's next correct. to her father and sitting next to her sister and her mother together, and and having these you know deep rich memories. And, you know, going back to the beginning of, of of the show today, you know, talking about being in a place and time that brings you like your father right, it brings evokes, you back it evokes to, uh, something yeah. much deeper. Um, and that's the melody. It's right. only the melody. It's not the words. If I put the words, the, you know, the translated words in a page, like you just said, dry words in a. It wouldn't. It wouldn't register. It, that it, it would mean nothing. Right. You, you know, we're going to ask you to give us a little Kol Nidre. I will play this, you. I can play you a wonderful Kol Nidre. This comes out. This comes out of the Reform Synagogue, um, which is, and this is, in my opinion, probably the greatest setting of Kol Nidre, maybe even ever. Um, it was written by a, um, a composer named Max Max Janowski. Um, who was a stalwart of the reform uh, movement in the United States um, in Chicago, one of the big reform temples um, in Chicago. The particular recording of this Kol Nidre that I have was by Jacob Barkin, um, if you remember oh, from, talked about it at the beginning. From, from my youth. Um, and I listened to it. This is the last thing I listened to every year before going to shul for wait, wait, so, so this composition is from where 
This is by by Max Janowski. Okay, nineteen thirties, nineteen nineteen forties, I believe, um, in the United States. And as I said, this is the last thing that I listen to every year before I go to uh, I go to shul on Yom Kippur.
Okay. Wow. So I, I ended Incredible. it here. So first of all, you'll understand why Jacob Barkin inspired me to, uh, to get into the canter. <laughs> um, the beauty of this arrangement, first of all, is you have a canter who is presenting this very, very straightforward, dry legal text very, very dramatically um, and with tremendous feeling and intensity. On top of that, you have a choir which, if you could sort of musically express Edvard Munch's painting the scream the primal scream <laughs> yeah that's that's what the choir is doing here it's a shriek because we're going into yom kippur life and death the day is of being judgment, decided atonement and judgment and the choir is in the way i understand this piece the choir is reflecting that horror but what's the horror that they're reflecting it's a mirror the horror that we experience on Yom Kippur is the horror of the li- of, of our lives. I mean, we, we 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 confront every bad thing that we've done, and we have to regret it, and we have to confront it and deal with it. And at the same time, you have this cantor who's saying, "That's correct, that's correct." But nonetheless, there's a formula here. There is a way and a path which we're going to walk down—a very intense, meaningful path. And that's what he's doing. He keeps on directing the choir and directing the thing, the movement forward. Now, musically, what's amazing about this piece is because for the first time in probably centuries, Janowski actually managed to put in a new phrase. Um, two, two actually new phrases, one of them far more novel than the other. And when I, when I say a new phrase, what I mean by that well, is... Well, he like stuck one in there? Yes, Yes, you, maybe you didn't notice it, but I'll um, I'll tell you where it was. Uh, humorously, Arnold Schoenberg, uh, the famous 20th century Jewish composer, was once asked um, maybe if he wanted to do some sort of a composition around Kol Nidre, which is not an uncommon thing. Kol Nidre appears in classical music. Beethoven's C major string quartet is based completely on Kol Nidre. Um, for example, um, the Bruch Kol Nidre for cello um, is a very, very well-known piece. Arnold Schoenberg, when he was presented with Kol Nidre, and Arnold Schoenberg was a very, very assimilated um, Jew, he said, you know, Kol Nidre really isn't a melody. Kol Nidre is a collection of phrases. And it's true. There are a series of phrases, and cantors arrange the phrases, you know, according to their, uh, according to their wish. Here at the section Shivikin, Shivitin, Janowski put in a new phrase. Shiviki. It's very hard. It's always hard for me to get to it. That's new to Kol Nidre. So how does he get away with it? But we sing that today, don't we? No, you don't sing it that way. You say the words. We say the words. But that... That was new. That's a new thing that he... How did you get away with it? Because Kol Nidre is not a Messina melody. Kol Nidre is based upon the Alenu, but it's not itself Messina. 
we have elevated it culturally. The Jewish people have elevated this, um, and it fits. It fits very beautifully, and it's it's just every time I hear that Shavikin Shavitin from Barkin singing, it just I, I don't know why it just does something to me every time. It, it just this is just. I got to say, I was I was tearing up a little bit when I was uh, when I was hearing that. This this is just an absolutely amazing amazing piece. The other Misinai melodies, just very, very quickly, there is the Kaddish and the Avot of Ne'ila. You can't change that. Um, the Avoda, the, where we were in Yom Kippur, where we recount the temple service of Yom Kippur. The uh, sacrificial service. The sacrificial service, that yes. The, that the priests used to do in the right. temple. That melody, also, you absolutely have to do that in that section. So as far as, as you're aware, yeah, and, and I'm sure things changed over the centuries as, as things moved from the Middle East to, to through Southern Europe into Northern and Eastern Europe, um, but but that would have been, would that have been somewhat familiar to a Jew from ancient Israel during the Second Temple? Yeah, you read my mind. I was literally just going to I don't know. That. But I was going to say some, a, a, a different twist, which is, to be, which is to say, would that be familiar to a Jew living in Morocco or a Jew living in Egypt or in Syria? No, we know no. that. We know not. We no, know not. Would, they, would, would they have a similar? No. 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 No, but let's go back to the ancient Jew. I don't know. I don't. I don't believe so. You don't believe. I so. I don't believe so. So how do we know? How, so what does Messina become Messina? Like, so, what does okay. that happen? So, read my mind where I want to take you. There was in the 14th century the chief rabbi of Mainz, a man named Rabbi Jacob Molin, who is along with him another Hungarian rabbi Isaac Tiernau. They are the main codifiers of Minhag Ashkenaz of the Ashkenazi custom. Um, of Jewish life, did they know it? Did they know that about themselves at the time? Um, I believe, I don't know if they knew about it of, the, of themselves at the time, but they set out to begin to record and to write down Ashkenazic customs during various expulsions and migratory paths of Jews being who had, had been expelled. Ashkenazi Jews had been expelled from communities um, during Crusades. I'm talking about probably I think the Second Crusade at that point. Um, Jacob Molin who was also a cantor, which back then, in those days, the rabbi and cantor were very often the same person. He went out to the various encampments of the Jews, and he asked them, please sing for me how you pray. I want to hear how you pray. The common threads and the common melodies became the Messinai melodies. All the Ashkenazic Jews that he encountered sang that Aleinu melody. All the Ashkenazic Jews that he encountered sang Ochila La'el, which is another central prayer of the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur liturgy. Ochila La'el, achale panav, eshalam imenu ma'anel ha'ashon. All right. These and those became the Misenai. These were the common melodies, the common thread which joined Ashkenazic Jews together musically when they prayed, and those became, the, what are also called in Polish, the skarbowe, the jeweled sword. And they remain with us to this day. And they remain with us to this day. You cannot, I once interviewed a cantor for a shul where I, where I belonged in New Jersey, 
and he began to sing the Achila, which I just sang. He began to sing it to um, close every door to me. Um, uh, from Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat by Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> so because you're a lawyer, I'll just like, use this metaphor. It's like you could immediately tell by that if he was like a traditionalist or if he was some sort of a... He was a guy, he was a friend of mine until that point because as soon as he began to do that, I cut him off and I said, you can leave now. Why weren't you the cantor? Because I had a job someplace else. Oh, okay. Um, and I just simply said, no, you can leave. And he's like, why? And I said, just no. Just no. You think he knew? You know, um, so yes, those you cannot change. You absolutely just cannot um, cannot depart from them. Now, of course, there is variation. There is some level of regional, you know, variation. Aleno in Germany didn't sound exactly the same as it did in Belgium, and it didn't sound the same exactly as it did in Poland or in Hungary and things like that, and places like that. But it's common enough still. This. That's common. It's there. It's there. Aleinu. Everybody starts. Aleinu. You know, there might be a note here and there which changes because, you know, people are people and you're dealing with what was an oral tradition for centuries. So, which we're about to touch back on something which we had said before that, you know, only in the 20th century did this begin to be academically studied. You're right, but then again, ask yourself a question. When does musicology begin? Right. It's, it's, it's and a then, reflection on everything. And then when does ethnomusicology begin? And then when does religious ethnomusicology begin? I mean, Jews have not, not exactly been at the forefront, but we didn't lag too far behind right. uh, with any of this either. So maybe maybe just to go into one place before we end up closing up this this episode, which is and we were talking about this a little bit before when we were when we were exploring this podcast uh, topic. This seems to be, in many regards, in today's world, I don't want to say the word like a dying art, but there aren't that many. Um, it seems, or, like, it seems it, like there's fewer and fewer places fewer and to, fewer go places to go here. Correct. Yes, and and it seems like there are few, and maybe that's a reflection on where um, you know. Judaism is going. There's more. There's more pluralistic, progressive, you know, uh, uh, streams, and the and the, you know, the amount of that in certain countries, or or perhaps it's just like you said before, people's attention spans, what people like about melodies and music is changing over the time. You know, generations change. You know, where where is the future for this? You know, I, I would be very profoundly sad if this were to become something of a relic it doesn't you know it definitely deserves to be you know promoted not not uh, not shelled and you know where are we going from here that's a very very difficult question for a lot of different reasons in the orthodox world and here i'm drawing more in the united states post-world war ii than anywhere else because this is really where a big change took place historically in the 19 the post-world war ii era immediately um there was a big difference in philanthropic priorities between the Orthodox communities and the conservative community. Which were the mainstay at that time? Well, no, reform was really the bigger mainstay, but reform uh, reform was very late into bringing in cantors. Mm. Reform had a choral tradition. I'm not, I'm not getting into reform because cantorial music and reform movement in America, it's much. It's, it's a later and a different style, a, diff- yeah. a, a very, very different environment, very, very different world. 
the conservative movement built huge synagogue centers. And they needed to do that because they had huge memberships. They had thousands of families sometimes in these congregations. And they built magnificently large, beautiful um, synagogues. And they employed amazing cantors. For example, immediately following World War II, cantors who had survived the Holocaust and came to America found a home in the conservative movement. Conservative movement did more to preserve classic cantorial music than any other denomination or any other movement in the United States. And as much as I may have my religious differences with the conservative movement, I think every single player in the movement from those years has earned himself a sublime part of, portion of heaven um, for what they did to preserve um, synagogue music. These cantors came, they had supportive congregations, um, which gave them the resources to uh, rejuvenate themselves and to rejuvenate the art and to carry it forward for at least 30 or 40 years. Um, it's a tremendous feather in the, in the cap of the conservative movement um, that they did that. By contrast, orthodoxy placed its philanthropic dollars in schools. They didn't build big shuls, by and large. They didn't necessarily employ cantors. And there were sociological reasons for that as well. The Young Israel Movement, which is a popular synagogue, uh, orthodox synagogue um, movement in the United States, which very much wanted lay participation. They didn't want their, their the Jews in synagogue to be passive listeners only. Um, so therefore, members themselves would begin who knew to... Um, knew how to lead services, they would be the ones to get up um, and to uh, and to lead. Orthodoxy didn't build um, synagogues like that. They didn't employ cantors. The role of the cantor was significantly downgraded. The problem and the mistake that orthodoxy did was in the day school curriculum, and orthodoxy is Jewish day school in America. Jewish day schools, the existence of them is owed entirely to the orthodox movement. The conservative movement imitated orthodoxy when it began to invest dollars into the Solomon Schechter day school system because they saw that there is a staying power which is created by this type of education. The horrible mistake that the Orthodox made, in my opinion, when it came to prayer was they did not teach Nusach HaTfilah as part of their Judaic curriculum. They just simply ignored it completely. I don't know why. It just simply was not emphasized. It wasn't stressed. And therefore, a fluency in this has gone away. And what that bodes for the future of Judaism, uh, or at least for the future of cantorial Judaism, um, it, it's very, very concerning to me. And it's concerning to me in two different ways. Number one, there's a thousand-year tradition. You know, especially we in Orthodox, we pride ourselves in, you know, in fooling ourselves and saying, my great-great-grandfather could come back to life and come to my Passover Seder and he'd feel completely at home. Now, we know this isn't true. I don't speak Hebrew, especially now that I came to Israel. I don't speak Hebrew the way my grandfather, I don't speak Hebrew the way my father spoke Hebrew. Certainly not my great-grandfather. He would feel completely foreign in the very, very traditional Orthodox synagogue that I belong to here in Rehovot. He would feel like a fish completely out of water. He wouldn't understand a word. But it's a myth, you know, that we, that we tell ourselves. But part of that myth, which would be correct, is he would recognize some of the tunes, and that sense, that sense of continuity, which Nusach, and which the traditional classical synagogue music, which 
It's a tradition at least which begins in a systematized basis begins in the 18th century going forward. Um, and it harkens back, obviously, to long before that as well. That's lost. And once it's lost and completely forgotten, you know, for example, when my time on earth is finished, I don't have anybody who I can give over, you know, this uh, this, this package, you know, that, that, I, that I carry with me and I love. Um, it's gone. It's forgotten. Um, in Israel, for various halachic reasons, for reasons of Jewish law, a lot of these piyutim, these ancillary prayers, are not said. In which case, the musical tradition that accompanies them is completely forgotten. There are, the average Ashkenazic Israeli Jew does not know this music at all because he's never heard it. That's number one. That's a continuity which is being lost. And equally important is, what is it being replaced with? Somebody came and said, we want to slough off the old and we want to create something new, something which resonates, and do it artistically and do it beautifully. All right, I wouldn't like it very much because, you know, why should we get rid of everything which is old? Um, but what are we replacing it with? I don't know. Is there an answer? What is, is it being replaced I mean, with? There, there are attempts. There are new Jewish music. Um, and musicians, uh, serious musicians who are trying to approach Jewish music in new ways, and maybe you know we can tackle that in um, you know in future episodes. Um, do you do you see a difference? You've been in Israel now for four years, and, and yeah. you've been here before, and you've been around to shuls, um, at least in the Ashkenazi world. And we'll do a whole separate episode on Sephardic uh, Chazanut. Do you see uh, a difference in how Israeli um, Ashkenazi Orthodox Jews approach or feel about the cantorial tradition versus American Orthodox Jews? Yeah. In Israel, the interest in cantorial music is on the concert stage. Now, cantorial music has a long-standing concert tradition as well, which I didn't get into over here. There were pieces that were written only for, for, the, you know, for, for concert presentation. They're not meant for, uh, you know, for, for davening. Um, in Israel, the interest in it is on the concert stage, um, and it's there in America... There's barely even that. Um, America is considerably more advanced in its eschewing of the cantorial tradition um, than is uh, than is Israel. Um, you know the Karlebach, uh, you know phenomenon, which is something which um, I loathe tremendously. Um, I, as a matter of principle, do not sing a single Karlebach melody ever any time and that's for two different reasons number it's, one because it's true i can attest to that um number one because his music is destroying you know by a thousand by the death by a thousand cuts of nusach and number two i'm not going to get into a debate about it here in terms of his lifestyle and you know things that are said about him and uh, uh right and his misogyny and things like that i um I, I just don't i just don't think it's appropriate uh for his music to be uh to be sung in shul although i like his melodies i mean the melodies are nice they're you know they're, they're soulful. Catchy. They're catchy. They're soulful. soulful. They're catchy. They're, yeah. I, I understand. I understand the appeal, and it appeals to me as well. But I just I refuse to do it um, uh, as part as part of a davening um, ever. Not only that, when somebody else does it, I don't even sing along. I just simply scowl. I read. <laughs> you know, I always you sit, have a book. You sit and you don't smile. I have yes, a book. The place in he, he he tries to, uh, you know, mentally bring up Trump. He's like, you're fired. <laughs> no, it's just I don't. It's just it's just not part of it's just it's not part of my um, my prayer Weltanschung. <laughs> we'll put it that way. What the future? What the future holds? I don't know. Um, 
I hope that um, that this music, um, you know, survives. I, I, I really, I really do hope that it survives because it would just be such a horrible cultural loss um, for it not to. Um, but who knows? I can't imagine that it would. Uh, and 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 you know, again, maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe this next generation will appreciate it less. But there are definitely people like Dan and myself yourself and many 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 others that are going to do their very very best to continue the traditions to to make sure that it's appreciated to uh, spread and educate about its value and 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 its beauty and and again one of the major things that it has going for it is that it allows us all no matter who we are and where we're from and what our ideology and hashkatha might be to go back to a better place in time in our mind and to really connect to a part of ourselves that maybe we miss and that and that we wish that we could uh, have and that for that one brief moment that you're listening to it it's all comes rushing back like a flood so so that's something that i definitely find brings hope to me and i'm sure to you as well that uh you know it's it's more than just music well said so uh we opened this episode um in a kind of non-traditional way for for our podcast and we're going to close it in a non-traditional way for our podcast um, so we will, before we close, uh, we're going to thank you, Daniel Schwartz. Thank you very much for having me. It was really a pleasure. It was our pleasure, and uh, we learned a ton uh, about it, uh, about the world of Chazanut, um, and got to, um, I think, get a much greater appreciation for it and for its origins. Um, and I think, uh, Benny, maybe you'll agree with me here, the the most iconic melody of the High Holidays, uh, which we are approaching um, at least for me, I think for a lot of people, is the Avinu Malkenu melody uh, popularized um, in pop culture, even by uh, Barbara Streisand. Barbara, and was it was it Al Jolson also? Right? No, no, no. Well, what was, am I no, thinking? Of? Al Jolson's like no, no, no. Al what Jol- was that movie? There was a movie. I gotta find this. There's I don't a- know, but the, Avinu, the, the Barbara Streisand Avinu Malkenu is not by Barbara Streisand. Oh, I understand it's not by Barbara. It's Streisand. also it's also by Max Janowski. But it was in a movie. You're talking about Yenta. No, the jazz singer. Am I thinking of the jazz no, singer? No, no, no. The jazz singer, he sang Kol Nidre. He sang Kol Nidre. Okay. And by the way, in the Neil Diamond jazz singer, that section is also something I watch humorously uh, before <laughs> before Yom Kippur every year. That scene, that last scene in Shul, actually the cantor who was there, his name was Uri Frankel. He was a great cantor. Yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic he scene. Was, okay, he was, so I was confusing uh, Vino Malkano with Colney Dre. Yeah. Uh, but, but I do want to end... And Al Jolson with Neil Diamond. No, Al Jolson. The jazz singer is... There were, about... I'm not completely crazy. No, right? Al Jolson was like, yeah, it was like in the 20s. There were, but but there were a series. There were three different. There were three different stories all about the same thing. The son of the cantor who goes on to become yeah, a popular the, secular singer. Neil Diamond did the last one with, with uh, Sir Alec Guinness, I think it was who played. No, but who I'm played talking his about the older. The older one, also Al Jolson, did do yes, such uh, a film. Okay. Did uh, such I, wasn't, in I wasn't imagining. I wasn't he imagining. He did do such right. a, with Yossela Rosenblatt, who was one of the great great cantors as well, who made a cameo appearance in there. Um, so let's but, let's close the, this out with the, the, Malkana, the classic ta- Avinu Malkana. The Avinu Malkana that you're talking about comes out of the Reform liturgy. Um, it was by it's by Max Janowski. Um, it's the it's the one prayer out of the Reform prayer book which makes me jealous of them. I really wish we had it in the Orthodox prayer book as well because it's just such a wonderful short um, prayer, and Janowski's setting of it is um, is just masterful. Uh, the version that I brought is not Barbara Streisand. It's Jan Pierce, the, le- the legendary great Jan Pierce. Right, let's have it. And we're going to close out on this note. Uh, so this is Juanced Episode 10 with 
Daniel Schwartz, and enjoy. is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Fetherman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced. <laughs>